Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to come before you this morning and, um, and ask for your help. Uh, I come this morning tired uh, and weary and sore, and yet I don't have to worry about that because I believe in your Holy Spirit. I believe that he is not only present in me, but in us. And so, Lord, I ask for your help in, uh, in speaking what is true this morning and taking a look at this incredible uh, gospel account in the book of Isaiah. But also, Lord, for all of us, give us all understanding and let us all marvel at you. And, and, and let us understand that, that uh, worship is not so much act-based, but heart-based. That when our hearts marvel at you when we sing and when we pray and when we read and when we preach, that is when worship happens. And so, Lord, may we stand amazed in who you are and in what you've done for us and in just your power to reveal yourself and to, uh, to make promises and to fulfill your promises. And so, Lord, we need your help not only in preaching your word, but in understanding your word and certainly and maybe even especially in obeying your word. May we do that as well. Lord, we want to pray this morning for uh, our, our partners in ministry at the Christian Aid Center. Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for the relationship we have with them. We thank you for uh, the growing programs that they have. We're grateful for that. Um, Lord, we thank you that people are uh, completing the programs that they have and moving into positions of staff and as volunteers. And um, God, you're just doing great things there, and we're grateful for that. Uh, Lord, we pray that, uh, that they would serve uh, the community well, Lord, that, that, that not only would there be meals provided and shelter provided, but that the gospel would be clear, Lord, that people would be able to get the help that they need uh, that, that the Christian Aid Center can't provide, and that they might be able to make, uh, help people make connections they need to get, uh, to get care in any and every way. Lord, we know that the programs there can be difficult and hard. And as we'll see this morning, there's no easy way out of anything. Uh, that you didn't take the easy way out, but through suffering, you, uh, you redeemed us. And sometimes we go through hard things, Lord. And we ask that you would give a willingness to the people there to go through hard things and to, uh, to just see what you can and will do through the programs uh, there, Lord. And we pray for the staff as well, that you would give them energy, that you would give them resiliency, that they would just uh, love the work that they do. Lord, we pray that that, that ministry would um, not operate in isolation from your church, but the, that people would be plugged into the church, and that the Christian Aid Center can do what, what you have called them to do, but that, that people then would get involved in churches, and, and, uh, and that the church can do and be what the church is supposed to do and be as well. Lord, um, give us a great willingness to reach out to people uh, at, at Easter and to share the gospel and to invite, Lord, um, that we might be willing to do both, that the gospel might spread forth from us and, and that your kingdom might grow as it does through your people being willing to boldly uh, share the truth of who you are and what you have done. Glorify yourself through us in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at Isaiah 53, but we're going to start reading actually in 42.13. Now remember, uh, chapters and verses were added to your Bibles later. They're not inspired. And so sometimes, uh, like the book of Lamentations, the chapter and verse divisions are incredibly accurate and helpful. Sometimes, uh, maybe not so helpful. And this is one of those cases because... Um, Really, the section that we're going to look at in Isaiah 53 starts in 42.13. So follow along 
with me as I begin to read there and read through the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, one whom men, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our iniquities. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me ask, start today by asking you a question. And that is, do you ever doubt the accuracy or the validity of the Bible? Do you ever doubt its truthfulness? Do you ever doubt whether or not it's been historically preserved? Maybe more than any book ever, this book has incited more controversy and more good. And sometimes, I would think of the Crusades even, misplaced and misguided bad than, than this book. It is a controversial book. And for a long time, uh, this book, especially this chapter of Isaiah, has been attacked. There's this so-called higher criticism that wants to evaluate every single word and the nuances of the way words are used to discover who wrote what books. And higher criticism early in the 20th century, early in the 1900s, had led scholars to say that the book of Isaiah must have been written by three quote-unquote Isaiahs. 
Because the details, particularly of Isaiah 53, are just too accurate to have been written before Jesus died. And so somebody must have, at some point, come along after the death of Jesus and inserted this chapter into the book of Isaiah. And to make matters worse, the oldest copy of the, of the Old Testament we had at that time dated to 980 A.D. A hundred years ago, the oldest copy of the Old Testament we had was uh, from a thousand years after the death of Christ. So how accurate could this be? And then one day, a shepherd boy near the Dead Sea chucked a rock in a cave and heard a piece of pottery break. So people got some repelling equipment, and they crawled down in these caves, and they found scrolls preserved incredibly well inside of pots. And these scrolls dated back to before and some after the death of Christ. These, of course, are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they're an incredibly important historical document because one of the things, in fact, I think there's two scrolls. I've seen one of them in person. Uh, You can go to this museum in, in Jerusalem and you can see this entire scroll of Isaiah intact, rolled out. It probably goes almost from that wall to that wall and it's encased in glass. It's this huge scroll of the book of Isaiah. It dates to about 150 to 200 B.C., before Christ, and what we found is the book of Isaiah was exactly in that document, what we had a thousand years later. This blew higher criticism out of the water. Because now this alleged chapter of this book in Isaiah that supposedly was added after the death of of Christ is found to be in a scroll of the book of Isaiah before Christ. Which only goes to show that there was only one Isaiah who wrote the book of Isaiah. And this is incredibly accurate. If you could permit me a moment, I would would charge us that none of us have ever sat around, maybe you have, raise your hand if you have, sat around and debated the accuracy of Homer's Iliad. Anybody done that? How many copies of Homer's Iliad do we have? Anybody want to fashion a guess? Originals. Not originals, original copies. Nobody has an original. Anybody want to fashion a guess? Eight. And they, de- they date to more than a thousand years after Homer wrote it. How many copies or fragments of copies of the New Testament do we have? More than 40,000. And they date very, very closely to the writing of the New Testament. There is no book in history that is more historically attested to and the accuracy of at least its preservation been attested to over and over and over again. And one of the things we're going to see here as we look at the, the, book, or the chapter of Isaiah 53 over the next couple of weeks is the incredible ability of God to make promises and keep promises. And so we're going to take a look today, a historical look, that is an events-based look at Isaiah 53, and see how what Isaiah wrote here compares to the uh, uh, events of the crucifixion of Jesus 
some 700 years after this was written. And then next week, we'll, we'll take a theological look. Today, we're going to see what happened. Next week, we're going to see what it accomplished. Isaiah's name in Hebrew means Yahweh is salvation. And that's exactly what we see here in the 53rd Psalm. It is often called the fifth gospel because it is so clear on the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evangelist Dwight Moody was once asked if he had a written creed, that is a written doctrinal statement. His answer was, yes sir, you will find it in the 53rd of Isaiah. And Charles Spurgeon said, a condensed Bible is in this chapter. You have the whole gospel here. So let's take a look at the whole gospel according to Isaiah. Number one, the first thing we're going to see is the beating of Jesus. The beating of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, and in fact, I want to, uh, we'll look at 14 and 15 because the language here is a little difficult. Uh, As many were astonished at you, this word astonished uh, is not like, wow, that's amazing. This is appalled. This is an appalling thing. As many were appalled at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, what does this mean that he shall sprinkle many nations? Let me tell you a funny story. I've been married for 23 years. This happened the first year of my marriage, and I'm still promising I'm going to get Jennifer back one day but I probably will not. We were newly married. I was in the shower. Uh, I was taking a warm shower when all of a sudden a gigantic pitcher of cold water came over the shower curtain and on to me. It was a shocking experience. Or if you've ever been to an amusement park and there's rides that splash water and all of a sudden you're like, you're hit with water and it's this shocking like (gasps) kind of experience. That's the idea of sprinkle, an unexpected splash, a shock of cold water to your system. Uh, he would, this, this servant here in this final servant song in Isaiah, whatever is going to happen to him will be so appalling that his appearance will be marred beyond semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he shock so shall he sprinkle, so, how, so shall he be uh, shocking to many nations. The beating of Jesus was a shocking experience. In John chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, we read that Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. This, uh, this beating that is referred to here, both in Isaiah chapter 52 and in John 19, is, is what we would call flagellation. It was uh, similar to what you may have heard of of a cat of nine tails. It was a short whip, a short leather whip with multiple ends in which bone and maybe metal or, or other fragments would be tied into. 
and then a person would be beaten with it more than we think of like a whip that would be cracked. It was such a violent experience that in 248 BC under uh, portion rule and, under, and in 123 BC in, uh, under Sempronian rule in Rome, flagellation was not a punishment that could be inflicted upon a Roman citizen. Now think of who Rome is. Think of the Colosseum. Think of the violent games that would go on where people would fight each other or wild animals. It was a bloodthirsty culture. The only difference between them and us is we, we, we view it in a fake way because it's all made up in movies, but we delight in the same kind of violence. And it was such a severe beating that if you were a Roman citizen, you could not have this punishment enacted upon you. The same was also true of crucifixion, by the way. But I I think there's good reason to understand that, that maybe Jesus was beaten in this way beyond what was normal. Why do I think that? Because Pilate did not want to crucify him. And I think maybe Pilate had him beat beyond what was normal in this type of beating with the end goal of appeasing the crowd, that they would not be appeased. Eusebius records a scourging of this way that resulted in the bones and organs of the person being visible. The Hebrew word here in Isaiah 52, shamam, uh, here translated as astonished, It carries the idea, as I've said, appalled. If you have an NIV in your hand, this is one of the places the NIV gets it right. And the word can mean either astonished or appalled. Context drives the interpretation. But here, what we see is that this beating must have been appalling. Note the contrast, though, between verses 13 and 14. Behold, verse 13 of 52, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And yet, that doesn't stop the fact that many will be appalled at him, his appearance being marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. Some some. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, some see this, the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, as the aroma of life, and some as the stench of death. To some people, the death of Christ is beautiful, even though it's violent. And to some, it's just disgusting. We can either be appalled or amazed. It's a shocking experience either way. But we see here in Isaiah 53 the beating of Jesus. Secondly, we see in Isaiah 53 the silence of Jesus. The silence of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
And John chapter 19 verse 9 says, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. I mean, imagine the scenario. Jesus having been falsely arrested, falsely accused, the Jews raising up and even paying false testimony against him, and they are accusing him. If you went to court and you were being accused falsely, would you defend yourself? Of course you would, and you would be right to do so. But for what purpose is Jesus here? For the purpose of being found innocent? For the purpose of getting out of death? Or for the purpose of going to the cross? And so they accused him falsely. They made stuff up about him. And he just stood there silent. I think there's something more important here going on than that. And that is, it's not so much the accusation of these people that is false, that he is standing silent there for, but it is for my sin. Because whatever accusations God can make at me rightly for my sin fell upon him. And he wasn't there to defend himself. He was there to be accused and beaten and punished and die even though he was innocent for me and for you. And so he stood there silently. There is a high degree of contrast here between the crowd that shouts for Barabbas, this riot-inciting rabble-rouser, and Jesus who just stands there quietly. And the crowd cries out louder and louder for the crucifixion of Jesus. And the soldiers cover his head and taunt him and beat him. And they say, aha, save yourself. This is an accusation similar to the Jews earlier who, who said, when he's at, or later at the cross, when they say, if you're the son of God, save yourself. The thing is, he wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save me and you. And there's a contrast between Jesus' silence and the thieves who mock. Jesus simply and silently bears the reproach that he came to bear. And let's make no mistake here. We can't ever look at these people who mocked and called out for his crucifixion and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like them. Because if we were there, at best we would have been like the disciples who abandoned him at worst, we would have been like the crowd calling for his crucifixion. We can't look at this and say, I'm glad I'm not like that. And so we see the beating of Jesus. We see the silence of Jesus. Thirdly, in Isaiah 53, we see the death of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds... We are healed. Also, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and the beginning of verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. We see in Isaiah 53 the death of Jesus, and I don't want to linger too long here. J. Vernon McGee points out that all of the Gospels, Isaiah 53 and even Psalm 22, give almost no detail about the death of Jesus. This is the apex of redemptive history. 
This is the point that all history leading up to, before it leads up to, and this is the, the, the point in history that everything after it looks back to. This is the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan, and there's almost no detail about it. I've been reading Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and there's a lot of detail about how to burn grain. But there's not much detail here. Why not? Listen to J. Vernon McGee. The Holy Spirit has drawn the veil of silence over that cross. And none of the lurid details are set forth for the curious mob to gaze and leer. It is said of the brutal crowd who murdered him that they sat down and watched him. You and I are not permitted to join that crowd. Even they did not see it. For God placed over his son's agony the mantle of darkness. Whatever happened at the cross, in terms of details in the Bible, is shrouded in darkness. And even that day was shrouded in darkness. And we must be careful not to go beyond Scripture to, like the mob, sit down and gaze and leer and look at what happened that day. But we are given some detail here. Both pierced and crushed are accurate terms for crucifixion. Because the one being crucified would have his hands typically through the wrists and his feet typically through the tops of both feet pierced with a nail that hung them to the cross. But it was not this piercing that caused their death. It was the weight of your body being hung on your arms that would cause suffocation as your lungs were filled with water. And just to be cruel, the Romans would build a little platform under the person's feet so that they could stand up enough without ripping the nail out of their feet to breathe, thus prolonging the agony. When, the, the, when they didn't want people on the cross for Passover, notice in the Gospels that they came by and broke their legs. The purpose of this was so that they could no longer stand themselves up. Their lungs would fill with water faster. They would literally drown hanging on a cross faster. It would feel like a crushing weight was on you. Jeffrey Grogan points out that the first term, pierced, is literal, and the second term, crushed, is theological. He was pierced on the cross by Romans, but he was crushed under the wrath of God due to me because of my sin by God. But there is literal accuracy, I believe, here as well. The one crucified was pierced, but actually died of suffocation. Either way, as we look at this historically and theologically, both are true. And so Isaiah predicts for us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the death of Christ. We see also the burial of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave... That's important. You don't put live people in a grave. There are some who have accused, both in Isaiah and of Jesus, that he wasn't actually dead. You put dead people in a grave. And by the way, the idea that the Romans would have mistaken him for not being dead is ludicrous. They were masters at killing people. They knew what they were doing. And so his grave was made with the wicked. And 
with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. How is one's grave made with the wicked and with the rich man? Well, we see that in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, that is after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus would have been what we would call today indigent. He was not wealthy enough to have his own grave or tomb. They were expensive. They were hewn out of rock. You rolled a stone in front of them as the door to cover it, and you had to be wealthy in order to have your own. If you did not have your own, you would be placed in a communal grave or a communal uh, tomb. I think mass grave would be the wrong idea here. This would not have been a mass grave that Jesus would have been thrown into, but it would have been a communal grave. And, and his, his uh, well, where was I? Verse 9, his grave would have been assigned with the wicked, but a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, in his death, got permission to get the body and placed him in another tomb. So we see even the burial of Jesus in Isaiah 53. Now we get to the most important stuff. We see the victory, fifthly, of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, 11, we're told, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be counted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah, or John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, says that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus victoriously accomplished what he came to do. Verse 11 again. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, that is literally by the knowledge of him. The language here in the Hebrew doesn't tell us that it's knowledge that Jesus has, but that it's knowledge about this suffering servant. It's knowledge about Jesus. But by the knowledge of him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. He victoriously accomplished what he came to do. He bore our iniquities. He bore my sin. His death makes the many to be counted righteous. Notice that his death doesn't make all righteous. This is a hard thing for us to understand. But at the cross, Jesus didn't just open a door. When he died, he didn't just make a possibility. 
when he was crucified and dead and buried and resurrected, it wasn't for nothing. No, he actually purchased all who would believe in him that day. It's amazing how much the New Testament speaks of our salvation, which in one sense is not yet, as an event that's already happened. Because if you've trusted Jesus, if you have the knowledge of him, if you know who he is, he did not just purchase a possibility, he purchased you. Because the wrath of God that was due you that day was spent on him. I don't think Jesus had me in mind when he went to the cross. I think he was simply being obedient to the Father as he was not exercising the omniscience that he had as God, the the, the ability to know everything. Uh, Though he possessed that, he wasn't using it. I don't think he went to the cross with me in mind, but I certainly think the Father did. And I think the Father took every ounce of wrath that was due me and poured it out on him that day. And I was actually purchased that day. And you, if you have believed in him, if you have the knowledge of him, were actually purchased that day. Look at the completeness of the language here as well. Jesus didn't say it started. He didn't say it's begun. He didn't say I got you mostly there. He said it's finished. And Isaiah uh, here in 53 tells us that, that by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, uh, make many to be accounted righteousness and, or righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He's not a halfway savior. You don't have to add to what he has done. We don't, like the Catholic Church, believe that Jesus got you most of the way there, and now you have to add your works, your baptism, your communion, your marriage, your sacraments, whatever it is, to the work that he's already done. He's not waiting for you to add anything. He's not waiting for you to add circumcision. He's not waiting for you to add baptism. He's not waiting for you to add anything to what he has done. He did it all. And at the cross, before you and I were ever born, it was finished. The only thing you and I contribute to the salvation that he accomplishes here at Calvary is the sin that even made it necessary. Everything else he does. He's not a halfway savior. He saves, as we're told in Hebrews, to the uttermost. Even in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're told that the faith that we have in him is a gift from God. We provide nothing. He provides everything. You ever have a relationship where there's all take on somebody else's end and all give on your end? Aren't they exhausting? But what do you have that you can give to God that he hasn't first given to you? Life? Breath? Voice, money, praise, time, service. You can only do all of those things because he's first given to you. He's the consummate giver. He is the source of all things. And then, after being the one who gives all, before we can even return anything back to him, 
delights in us, enjoys us, favors us, lavishes his grace upon us. What an amazing God we serve. We see not only the the victorious work of Jesus, but we see the resurrection of Jesus. Look with me at Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet, think about this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why did God send him to the cross for us? Because he wanted to. All of this he did because he wanted to. If you struggle to feel loved by God, stop looking inside yourself for reasons why God should love you and just look to him who loves you because he wants to. He wanted to. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is strange language. Prolong his days. We don't talk in terms of offspring and in prolonged days for those who in the previous verse were put in a grave. Do you start thinking and talking about the offspring of people, loved ones of yours who have been buried? Do you talk about prolonging their days Look at verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is is language of the living, not of the dead. So in verse 9, he's buried, but in verse 10, his days are prolonged. He has offspring. He has a portion with the many. He divides the spoil with the strong. He makes intercession with the transgressors. This is not language of the dead. This is the language of the living. John chapter 20 verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John gets there before Peter and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. That's very Peter-esque, just rushing right in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He had knowledge of him. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The scriptures had spoken of Jesus' death and resurrection. Where? In places like Isaiah 53, where his death and resurrection is clear. He dies appallingly, he is buried, and yet his days are prolonged, and he makes intercession. 
He was pierced and crushed for our transgressions. He was assigned a grave. But here we see all of this language that he is living. This is language of the living, not of the dead. And so right here in Isaiah 53, penned 700 years before the death of Jesus, we see exactly a description of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I began by asking if you ever doubt the validity of Scripture. And I will end by asking if you ever doubt the resurrection. Do you doubt the possibility that a dead man could be alive? This is usually where people get hung up. We're decisively physical people. We want to see and touch and and hear and feel. We understand by what we see and we don't experience dead people coming back to life. So why should we believe this? I am, in fact, though, a little astounded by the struggle because people who are willing to believe in God are unwilling to believe in the resurrection. But if God has the power to make all things, and if he is the controller of all that happens, why don't we believe he has the power to raise the dead? If he has the power to give life in the first place, why, doesn't he, why don't we believe he has the power to give it again? The reality is this, 700 years before Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the dead, God told us it would happen. And it did, just as he told us. But maybe the most important thing for us to ask is not what happened, though that's important, but why it happened. And we're really going to look at that next week, but let me zoom in for just a moment on verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Yet, this is the final statement in this servant's song, He bore the sin of many. This is the purpose of his death and resurrection, was to bear our sin and to make intercession for the transgressors. This is so important. Hebrews is clear that that, that Jesus prays for us in heaven. And Romans is clear that the Holy Spirit prays for us from inside of us. Maybe there's no more comforting thing when life gets difficult, when we're going through the struggles of life, than to be reminded of the fact that God prays for you from heaven and God prays for you from within you. And if the ministry of Christ is prayer and intercession, how much should ours be as well? He bore the sins of many. Look with me back for a moment, if you will, at verse 4. Look at at what it says here. Surely he has borne his own griefs? No. Look at all the pronouns here. Surely he has borne our griefs, not his own, and carried our sorrows, not his own, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What was the purpose of all of this? Well, we're going to dial in on this next week as we take a theological look 
at Isaiah 53. But these events were for the purpose of the sinless Son of God bearing our sorrows. Romans makes this very clear. And what has often been called the Romans Road, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about this for a moment, if you will, with me. All it takes to be counted a sinner is to fall short of God's glory. Now Moses, encountering God's glory, his face lit up so brightly that he had to wear a veil. I think so often we think of sin as as activity-based. I did this thing wrong, and certainly that's true. But is there a single second of your life, living, sleeping, waking, whatever, that you have not fallen short of the glory of God? Our need for redemption is far beyond what we understand. It's not that I've done a few bad things in my life and and that was laid on Christ. It is that my whole life from the moment of my birth till the moment of my death is a falling short of the glory of God. Every second of every day, I am desperately in need of the redemption of Christ. Because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and what, is the, what is the due consequence of that? What is a wage? It is, it, is, it is a payment that you have earned. And Romans 6.23 is clear that the wages of sin is death. But, that's one of the most important words in Scripture. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord who bore our iniquities. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to be good enough. He didn't wait for us to deserve it. He didn't even wait for us to want it. He just did it because he loves us, because he wanted to, because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And Romans 10, 19, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the great exchange. My sin and all it deserves, he gets. And his righteousness and all that it deserves, I get. I was thinking if you could afford me just a couple more minutes yesterday as I was driving somewhere of Genesis chapter 1, as God creates day by day. And you know what was interesting to me? Is that, that everything needed justified. God creates light and dark. And then it's not assumed that it's good. He has to say it's good. And then he creates plants and animals and people and everything. And every day, he declares it's good. And his word is so powerful that whatever he declares to be true is true. And when we, when we simply turn from trusting ourselves and we trust Christ, when we have his knowledge, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with our heart that God raised him from the dead, God declares, he says, you're righteous. And his word is so powerful that when he says it, it must be true. How do you approach God? 
boldly? Because of what Christ has done? Because he has declared you to be righteous? Because when he says, my iniquity is laid on Christ, though he was sinless, he bears it. And though I'm, though I'm sinful, when he declares me to have the righteousness of Christ, I have it. Maybe, maybe you doubt sometimes. We all do. I'd be a liar if I stood up here and said I, that, that the thought never comes through my head. Is this all true? But then I look at this and I go, no person made this up. This doesn't come out of the mind of mere mortals because the reality is there are only two religions in the world. I can back that up. There are only two religions in the world. Biblical Christianity, which is all about divine accomplishment. Christ did it. It's finished. You do nothing but trust him. And every other religion that is a system of human achievement. Every other faith in the world is a system of trying to be good enough. When we make stuff up, we make stuff up about our goodness. But what God does is save us when we're not good simply because he is and then he delights in us. And he asks us to provide nothing, to contribute nothing, to just trust what he's done. To just believe. If you have not believed, do not let another day go by. Turn from your sin. Let Christ be the bearer of that iniquity. And simply trust him. And, and if you have, let me ask you, how many people do you rub shoulders with every day who need to know this? B.B. Warfield wrote a book called The Emotional Life of Jesus. And the word he found to be most connected to Christ in Scripture is that of compassion. It is out of great compassion that God saved you and I. Do we have the same compassion for the lost around us? We must if we're going to have the heart of Christ. Lord, may our confidence always be in you and not in us. May we, may we gloriously and joyfully see that we, we contribute and provide nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Lord, we love you and we are grateful for all that you have done for us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now I imagine... Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they, ha they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for, this, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that everything that has been done has been done at your word. We thank you from that from the beginning pages of the Bible, we see that your word and your word alone is enough to accomplish anything your will desires. Lord, we, um, we confess today that we, we often struggle to understand, uh, maybe practically, even if we understand it theologically, what it means that you are providentially in control of all things, that you are always working out your plan, that everything is always going according to your expectations and your desires. Lord, we thank you that, that because of this, you can give us your word from eternity past and we can be certain that it will be true. We can be certain that, that it is as good today as it was the day you gave it to us. For you do not change because you cannot be improved upon. Because you cannot be approved upon and because you cannot sin and, and, and become worse, we, we can know that your promises are sure and certain, even when we face uncertain days. We thank you that we serve a Savior who not only lived for us and died for us, but is risen for us and is interceding for us, is praying for us. Lord, we, we know and we understand that we are not the only church that is gathered this morning, even as we think about that right here in Walla Walla, but even to the ends of the earth. Lord, sometimes it is easy with uh, even, even good desires or good motivations to wander away from your plan. And we're told in, in 1 Corinthians that, um, that moreover, the, the most important thing about a servant of yours is that they be found faithful. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us as a church, as individuals, and not just us, but the church wherever it gathers around the globe, faithful. 
faithful to your word, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the means you have given us to, uh, to see people brought into your kingdom and to bless the world around us as well. Lord, we want to be faithful to you and to your will and to your way. Lord, we want to pray this morning also for our uh, partners in ministry, Bob and Teresa Reister, as they serve in Japan. Uh, we we uh, just want to praise you with them as, as uh, godly habits and disciplines are being passed on to new believers. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that the borders in Japan are, are slowly opening and that there's a uh, uh, possibility for people to come and join them. And Lord, uh, last time I saw them when they were home in the States, they were, um, they were sharing about how they, they desired for people to come to work to them but it, or with them, but it felt like there was uh, nobody who was interested in coming to, to work in, in Japan there. And now, Lord, we, we see this report that there are more than 20 people who have expressed interest in serving in Japan. And what an answer to prayer that is. Lord, we thank you that you have worked in the hearts of people to care about the gospel and the lost more than their own comfort, that they're willing to go around the world and cross uh, international borders to share the gospel with people. Lord, would you make us willing to do that if you have called us to that? Lord, we know that not all of us are called to missions, but we also know that all of us are called to evangelism, that all of us are called to go to our neighbors and to share the gospel. Lord, would you make us faithful to that? Would you, would you keep us from the hypocrisy of praying for those who share the gospel without being willing to do so ourselves? Lord, we want to pray uh, with them as there's a, a new discovery class starting in the park. Lord, we pray that, uh, that this would serve both evangelism and, and uh, discipleship well. Lord, we pray that these new workers would be allowed to come into Japan soon and get to work. And Lord, we pray for Bob as he goes through the difficulty of, of filling out paperwork and getting those submitted to the Japanese uh, uh, government, Lord. And um, we just pray for the annual retreat for uh, Christar in Japan as they will be having their, um, re well, maybe the, as they already have, looking at the timing of this re request, Lord, that it would be, would just have been a, a, a beneficial and joyful and unifying time for that uh, missions agency. Lord, we pray that you would give your people their rest, including Bob and Teresa. Lord, open our eyes to your word. Use it to uh, to change us today, and, and may we just marvel today at the glory of Christ and all that he has done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at Isaiah chapter 53, and we looked at it from a historical perspective, that, that is an events-based perspective. What are the events that, that Isaiah speaks to, and what, uh, how do those correspond to the death of Christ. And it's this amazing chapter with incredible accuracy where Isaiah tells us what would happen to, to Christ. And we see that Isaiah tells with incredible accuracy of the trials of Jesus and his silence, of his beating, of his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and even his resurrection. And so when we consider the events of the crucifixion, we know what happened. But what really happened? Why is it that this event provides for God's forgiveness? Have you, have you stopped to think about this before? Like what actually happened at the cross where, where, where God moves from angry towards sinners 
to having no angry or no anger towards sinners, not towards all sinners, but to those who believe. Have you stopped to consider what actually happened at the cross that provided for our salvation? We saw last week what happened on earth. Maybe another way to think of this is today, I want to see what happened in heaven. What what happened that this event actually brings us into God's good graces? And we shouldn't see this as a small problem. This this should captivate our attention. Isaiah 59.2 is clear that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah looks at the nation of Israel, and the same would be true for you and me, and says that your sin has made such a separation between you and God that he does not hear anything you have to say. What happens at the cross that that expanse between us and God that, that brokenness in the relationship between us and God is, is healed and, and, our, and we are brought back together into fellowship with God. This is not a small problem. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Brethren, a pure and holy God cannot endure sin. He cannot have fellowship with it or with those who are rendered unclean by it. Now, I would pause there and say, we often say things like, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And there is a sense in which that is true, is there not? But which gets condemned to hell eternally? The sinner or the sin? See, that's too big of a distinction to make. We can't separate the sinner from his or her sin. God, who is pure and holy, cannot endure sin, and he cannot have fellowship with it or with those who are rendered unclean by it. For it would be inconsistent with his nature to do so. On the other hand, sinful men cannot have fellowship with God. Their evil nature could not endure the fire of his holiness. Who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Who is, or or what is that devouring fire, and what are those everlasting burnings but the justice and holiness of God? The fact that our sin has separated us from God, from our perspective, is an insurmountable problem. And yet the death of Christ reconciles us to God. It brings us back into God's good graces. It allows us to stand before God in the pureness and holiness of his justice and his righteousness without being consumed by them. What actually happened at the cross? How is this problem actually fixed? And that's what I want to explore today. And so I want to see five effects of Jesus' work on the cross. We have slides for these, but I don't think we're 
getting them up yet. Here we go. There we go. Five effects of Jesus' work on the cross. Number one, Jesus is our sinless substitute. Jesus is our sinless substitute. We see this in verse 9 where we told, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. One of the things we see about Christ clearly from Scripture is that he was sinless. And we're going to talk about the importance of, of why, but we're going to use a lot of theological terms today. And one of those terms is substitute. What does it mean? What is this concept theologically that Jesus was our substitute? Well, this is pretty simple for us to understand. What comes to mind when you hear the word substitute? Probably a teacher, right? In, in the absence of your regular teacher, a substitute stands in that person's place. Well, that is not far off. A substitute is one, or even a substitute teacher, is one who stands in the presence of another, one who is present in another's absence. Brothers and sisters, the classroom of holiness is a classroom that we are entirely absent from. You have not showed up to that room, nor have I, not one day of your life. And both in Jesus' life and in his death, he has been our substitute. We'll look more at that in just a moment, but, but follow along with me. The reality is that God's perfection, his holiness, and his righteousness demand perfection of us. Leviticus 11.45, one, uh, one verse among many that say this, God says, For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy." 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but we were just all obliterated. Peter levels us all. In the same manner that God is holy, in the same manner of his hatred for sin and separation of sin, in the same way that there is no sin whatsoever in his life or being or character or even his presence, you also be holy in all your conduct. We ought to read that verse and say, I'm in trouble. And Peter wants us to read that verse and think, I'm in trouble. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are absent from this reality. So how can we become what we are not? How can we be somewhere that we are not? By means of a substitute. See, Christ was holy where we were not. He, he was died. He, he, verse 9 is clear that they made a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although... He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Whether in deed or in word, Jesus was perfect. And where we have disobeyed God, he has obeyed him perfectly. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse we'll come back to multiple times, said, For our sake, he, that is the Father, made him, that is Christ, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He, he knew no sin. 
And, and it's in him that we become righteous. He lived his life in perfect obedience. Why didn't Jesus just be born and die the next day? Because it wasn't just to die in our place, and we'll see that momentarily, but to live in our place for which he came. He came to live the sinless life that you and I have not and cannot and never could live. And when we, by faith, are placed in him, Ephesians uses this phrase over and over, in him, in Christ. I once heard somebody share the analogy of, of getting on a plane and going to Australia. If you want to go to Australia today, you're going to have to get in a plane, not near a plane, not under a plane, or on top of a plane, or behind a plane. You can pick these you want. You have to be in the plane. And this is what God does by faith. When we trust in Christ, when we trust his righteousness, when we trust his perfection, we are placed, to Paul, use Paul's word in 2 Corinthians 5 and repeatedly in Ephesians, we are placed in him. Listen to this verse again now. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin, and it's in him that we become righteous. He is our sinless substitute in life. But he is not just our sinless substitute in life. He is our sinless substitute in death. And so secondly, we see that Jesus made atonement as our substitute. Jesus made atonement as our substitute. We've already got substitute down, but what, is it, what does atonement mean? Well, if you look it up in a dictionary, you will see that atonement is making satisfaction for wrong or injury. I love that definition. It's not making reparation for wrong or injury. It's making satisfaction for wrong or injury. If somebody does something wrong to you and you sue them and you go to court, the settlement, it's going to be whatever the judge determines. And there's a big difference between a settlement that might make reparation and a settlement in your mind that might make satisfaction. And here we see that atonement is making satisfaction. This is where we begin to see the two parties being brought together. It is in the death of Christ that the judgment and justice and wrath of God are satisfied for our wrong and injury. I think of atonement as bringing two parties together. I don't even know where I heard this, but somebody broke it down into three really kind of separate words. Atonement means at one meant. That somebody takes two separated parties and brings them together as one. But Jesus didn't make atonement for himself. He made atonement for us. He didn't repair his own sin and wrongdoing. He repaired ours. And he did this in our place. Look again with me at verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs. 
and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice all the pronouns. It's our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. And it's those transgressions and sorrows and iniquities that are laid upon him, thus bringing us peace. I would bring us back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's not just his righteousness in life that he provides for us. But for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. He gets treated like a sinner so that I can get treated as though I'm righteous. I don't use accidental language there. We have to be very, very careful. I've made the statement, I don't think I've made it from the pulpit, but to individuals, that there's a whole host of sermons out there that could probably be found on the internet that I wish I could take back. And one of those is a sermon that I preached on 2 Corinthians 5.21, where I said Christ became a sinner for sinners. Where, Where Christ became a liar for the liars. An adulterer for the adulterers. A murderer for the murderers. But theologically, I find this to be untrue. And one of the things I have to do is understand 2 Corinthians 5.21 in terms of what's the whole of Scripture. Because if Jesus in any way goes to the cross guilty, he can only atone for his own guilt and not mine. The only way he can atone for your sin and for mine is is if he has no sin to deal with. He didn't become a sinner on the cross any more than I, as I stand before you, have become perfectly righteous. If you believe that, I'm sorry. I'll disappoint you quickly. But he gets treated like a sinner. So that being guiltless, and as he's treated like a sinner, I, being guilty, can be treated as though I am righteous. By by faith, we trade places with Christ. When we believe in him, when we trust his life, his death, his resurrection, he gets everything we deserved. And we get everything he deserves. He gets our punishment and death. We get his reward. Does this mean that Jesus is, is, is in any way like the child sacrifice we read about in the Bible? Like Molech, these large idols with arms that would be built with uh, with bellies where they lit fires and people would come to appease the angry deity and and place their children 
on the altar to burn and die to appease an angry God? Is that the picture here? That God is nothing but pure wrath and Jesus is nothing but but pure kindness? And so you have an angry father who doesn't like us and a kind son who loves us. You've got the first half of the Bible where God's nothing but mean and the second half of the Bible where he's nothing but nice. Is that what's going on here? It would be easy to think that. Don't think we can go there. Why not? Look at verse 10. Yet, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. Make no mistake, Jesus rushes in and rescues us. No doubt he comes to our rescue. And what does he rescue us from? He rescues us from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we wait for his son from heaven, whom he, raised us, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is wrath to come. There is wrath from a righteous, holy God towards sin. This is the problem we've been talking about. This is what Jesus rescues us from. And yet, here in Isaiah 53, verse 10, we find it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Whose wrath does Jesus save us from, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.10? God's. And according to Isaiah 53, whose idea and will was it to do this? God's. John Piper said the wonder of the gospel is this, that the very God we needed saving from is the very God who saved us. The picture presented to us here in Isaiah 53 is not this angry Old Testament divinity who is placated by the kind, loving, meek Jesus. Because if you've read Revelation, by the time we get there, who meets out the justice of God? It is Jesus. And he was clear that the first time he came in peace to die, and the second time he will come with a sword to judge. The picture for us from Genesis to Revelation is of a father and a son who both hate sin who both judge sin and who both love us and kindly and patiently have pursued us and made atonement for us. Why is Jesus our substitute in death? To atone for our sin, to pay for our sin, to make satisfaction for our wrongdoing. But why did Jesus atone for our sin? Because the Father wanted him to. What love there is from God in that it is His wrath that we needed saving from, and yet it is Him who saves us. Can you think of a moment in your life where where you might describe what you felt as wrath? I mean, really, really 
really angry. Was your second thought, how can I absorb my own wrath so that person doesn't have to? Because that's what God did. Oh, what love he has for us. But this isn't all. Jesus was our substitute in life. He was our substitute in death to atone for our sin. But as we have already seen, and I probably am getting ahead of myself, uh, Jesus' death was according to God's initiative. Jesus' death was according to God's initiative. I want us to see that it wasn't uh, initiated in the last point by a kind son who is placating a vengeful and angry father, but that the death of Jesus was from a kind father and a kind son who are both angry towards our sin. But this point I want to make more in relation to, to us. See, most of us talk about and operate in the Christian life like it's initiated by us. Like, like God is somehow sitting on the bench, pining away after us, but powerless to receive us. We sing songs based on, uh, on the story of Jesus and Lazarus, where, where we say, when he called my name, I came out of that grave. And yet most of us think and operate like what God does is call our name and then we just get to decide whether we live or die. What choice do you think Lazarus had when Jesus steps up to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out? Do you think the dead man debated with himself? Do I believe or don't I believe? This is never the picture presented to us. The picture presented to us is of a God who says, come to life, and the dead come to life. We didn't initiate salvation. God didn't save us because we wanted to be saved. He didn't save us because he was lonely. I think a lot of us are subject to that sometimes. We forget that God has eternally existed as a trinity in relationship of love and affection and submission. And we think, oh man, God had to create people because he was lonely. And then when they sinned, he had to save them because he didn't want to be lonely. He didn't save us because he was lonely. He didn't save us because we were good. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Salvation is initiated by God. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord, that is to save sinners, and everything else, by the way, shall prosper in his hands. Notice the order of things in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Titus 1, 1 and 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies be promised before the ages began. 
For Paul, the term before the ages began is everything that happened before Genesis 1. So before the ages began, before anyone or anything existed, God promised, I believe to his son, to save people by grace through faith and give them eternal life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Brothers and sisters, this was planned by God, initiated by God, and accomplished before God or by God before anybody even wanted God to do this. We are far, far more loved than we understand. So thirdly, we see that Jesus' death was according to God's initiative. Fourthly, we see that Jesus' death provides justification. Here's another big uh, uh, theological term that's in reality simple to understand. It's a very uh, churchy word, but it's a really important word, and it's a very, very profound idea. The, the word justification is a transactional word. It's, in fact, a legal term. Legally, it means not guilty. It means not guilty. It means Jesus' sinless life and atoning death provides for us the verdict in the court of God of not guilty. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been declared not guilty by faith. That's the key. When is it that we're declared not guilty? When we believe. By the way, those words in English and in your mind, this is a side note here, but I think it's important, belief and faith, or to believe and to have faith, should have no distinction in your thinking. In fact, there's no distinction in Greek. Pistis is the Greek word for faith, and pistuo is the corresponding verb for to believe. Why do we translate one faith and one to believe? Because we don't have a verb in English for faith. There's no corresponding English word that's, that's a verb for the noun faith, and so we use to believe. But we are justified, we are declared not guilty by faith when we believe. How? Well, with the result that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To use modern legal terms, our record is expunged. You know what it means to have your record expunged? Sometimes very, very young offenders in the legal system will have their record expunged. This is very different than sealed. Let's say as a 12-year-old boy, I committed a heinous crime. But at some point, a judge decides that he doesn't want this crime held against me, and so he seals my record. The record's still there, you just can't see it. There, there's, there's no access to it. And so when you look at my record, it appears to be clean. This is not what Jesus did. 
No, when, when you have your record expunged, when that 12-year-old criminal, when the judge says, you know what, this should not be held against him, let's expunge his record, my record is not sealed, it's deleted. There's nothing to find. There's no longer a record there. This is what justification means. That when Christ died in my place and when I by faith trusted in Christ and I was justified, God hit the delete button on my record of sin. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record, not sealing, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Christ, our guilty record is erased. Look with me again at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, there's faith. Shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. See, I'm not righteous. How is it that I can be declared justified by God? Because the righteousness of Christ, that righteousness he lived as my substitute, when I trust Christ, that righteousness is deposited into my account. Not only does that delete my guilty record, but it gains me his righteousness. It's credited to me. It's accounted to me. It is not my righteousness. It doesn't belong to me. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. We teach that it is the righteousness of Christ that by faith is counted as mine. This is what it means to be justified. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And fifthly and finally, Jesus' ministry to us involves intercession. Jesus' ministry to us involves intercession. We saw this last week. Intercession is simply praying on behalf of somebody else and the end of verse 12 is clear. The, the very last two lines of this uh, chapter, this song, uh, yet he bore the sins of many. That's what he did at the cross. And since then, he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the ministry of Christ for you right now. Uh, since we've been using the analogy of a courtroom because there's court language here, uh, the best way to think of this is as Christ intercedes for us, he is, he is, it is his presence, his righteousness, his victorious death, and now his, his, his life that, that stands before God ever as our righteousness. In other words, we have a lawyer in heaven in Christ and he never loses a case. He never ceases to provide for us 
the verdict of not guilty. Why? Because he prays for us. Look how important forgiveness is in relation to intercession as, as recorded in Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, that is what's before this in chapter 7, is essentially the statement that we are uttermost sinners. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Everything that comes up to this point in Hebrews is clear that we're uttermost sinners and he's an uttermost savior. And so consequently, the consequences of his death, his resurrection, and his ministry now is that he is able to save to the uttermost. We're having problems today. Uh, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to pray for you. He always lives to defend your cause, to plead your case. Again, not because God is this angry deity who he needs to placate. We must remember that all of this was planned according to the will of the Lord. Why is it that I don't believe people can lose their salvation? Because I don't think Christ can lose a case. John is clear. Of those the Father has given me, I will lose none but will raise them up on the last day. Why is it that he's able to save with certainty? Because he is always pleading your case. Why can't we lose our salvation? Because he is an uttermost Savior who can save uttermost sinners. And he lives. He lives to pray for you and to pray for me. And while this isn't in Isaiah 53, I think one of the comforting things that we should know is it's not just Christ who prays for us. I think uh, Romans chapter 8, and you can turn there with me if you like, is an often misunderstood passage. It would be very easy to cherry pick the statement the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and say, see, there's tongues right there in the Bible. And there's plenty of passages in the Bible that talk about tongues. I'm not going to talk about that today. This just isn't one of them. This, This isn't... Uh, the groaning that might be called tongues. Paul says, starting in verse uh, 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings, there's the context. Can, Can you relate to that? Can you relate to suffering? To difficulty? To sadness? Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. When was it subjected to futility? Genesis 3, when we sinned and God subjected it to futility. When he cursed creation. And creation wasn't subjected to futility willingly, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. All of God's creation is groaning 
under the weight of the consequences of sin. All creation groans with this heavy load too big to bear, uh, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We groan under the effects of sin in this life, just as all creation does. And we, we look forward with hope to that day secured for us by Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah, where there will be no effects of sin, where there will be no groaning, no aging, no pain, no sadness, no sorrow, no grief, none of it, when it's all been wiped away. And likewise, verse 25, in the same manner, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, For we do not know what to pray as we ought. Have you ever been faced or asked to pray for a situation that is so grievous that you just don't even know how to pray? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. So all creation groans under the effects of sin. Believers groan under the effects of sin, but we don't, we don't groan alone. Because the Son, in the presence of the Father, is interceding our case for us and has dealt with the effects of sin. But the Spirit, being present in us, groans with us. See, as we come up to Easter, and we think at Christmas about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. What a glorious reality that is, is it not? And yet, Jesus tells his disciples, it's a benefit for you if I go. Because when I go, I will send the helper, the Spirit, who will live in you. Have you ever thought, man, I wonder how amazing would it have been to have lived with Jesus when he was on the earth? I've thought that. But if I'm understanding John rightly, we have it better than they did. Because in Christ, God dwelt with the disciples. But in the Holy Spirit, God dwells in you. And we have a son, this sinless, perfect, atoning, substitute son who lived perfectly for us, who died a death he didn't deserve, who rose victoriously, offering us life, everything he has, we get by faith. And we get the Spirit who lives in us who prays for us from within us. Just as we have a son, the son, who prays for us in heaven. Here's another Spurgeon quote to wrap us up. 
It's a hard one to understand. I'm going to go slow and read it twice. It's old language. What a wonderful atonement is that which hides from God that which cannot be hidden. What a wonderful atonement is that which hides my sin from God, something that cannot be hidden, so that God does not see what, in another sense, he must always see and forgets what is it is impossible for him, in another sense, to forget. What a wonderful atonement we have in Christ that causes God who knows my sin, and make no mistake, he still knows our sin. Hebrews is clear. He disciplines us for it lovingly. But what a wonderful atonement we have in Christ that causes God not to see in me what in one sense he also sees. That is my sin. And to see in me what in another sense he does not see, that is righteousness. That's what Spurgeon is alluding to here. That God does not see what is in me, that is sin, and does see what isn't in me, that is righteousness. Hear it again. What a wonderful atonement is that which hides from God that which cannot be hidden. So that God does not see what in another sense he must always see, or in one sense he must always see, and forgets what it is impossible for him in another sense to ever forget. Oh, Christian, do you see What was done for you? Is it no wonder that the church's cry is hallelujah, what a savior. But if you don't believe, would you today? Would you stop trusting yourself and your righteousness and your goodness and and, and your position before God on your own and trust him? Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple trust is all that is needed to have the record of your sin expunged, to be justified. Why? Because Jesus is our perfect, sinless, atoning substitute. Lord, thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. Christ, thank you for all that you have done for us. God, it is clear that you loved us and gave your son for us. And Jesus, it is clear that you love us and offered up your life to sanctify us and to redeem us and to purchase us. And Lord, as we turn now to your table as we we turn to remind ourselves of what you have done for us, the atoning work of of your sacrifice, as as we visibly see the demonstration that by faith we are partakers of Christ's death and resurrection, may it be a reminder to us, not only of our unity with you, of our participation in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ through faith. 
and the life that he has through faith. But, but may it also remind us that this is a, a communal act that we participate in together and might it serve to strengthen our unity as a church. Lord, be glorified in our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.